Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The Crisis Next Door. A weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world. With host Jason Brooks. Thank you for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Syria's civil war is grinding on in its ninth year. And while Bashar al-Assad appears secure in Damascus, thanks to help from Russia and Iran, huge questions remain for Syria, including the future of the main opposition group battling the regime, Kurdish autonomy in the north, and what to do with thousands of captured ISIS fighters. Joining the crisis next door to talk about Syria is Stephen Cook, Eni Enrico Matei, Senior Fellow for Middle East and Africa Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's also authored the book False Dawn, Protest, Democracy, and violence in the new Middle East. Stephen, thank you for coming back on The Crisis Next Door. My pleasure, Jason. Let's start with the mass surrender of ISIS fighters to the Kurdish-dominated Syrian Democratic Forces. The SDF now holds thousands of ISIS fighters it's captured, many Syrian and Iraqi fighters, and around 1,000 foreign fighters. What are they going to do with those fighters, and how big of a threat is that to the SDF? Well, this is a huge problem. Um, there are, as you point out, large numbers of ISIS fighters who've now given themselves up to the SDF. And the SDF, as capable as it has proven to be as a, an American ally in the fight against ISIS, is not well equipped to hold on to all of these people. Uh, this comes at a time when the United States is saying that it's going to be leaving and drawing down its troops to anywhere between 200 to 400 forces. And the Europeans have not indicated that they are going to step up where the United States has stepped down. So we do confront a situation where the SDF is holding on to people. Their record uh, in terms of keeping people either not abusing them or even letting them go is not a great one. So um, it is a, this is one of the things that uh, in Washington we talk about when we talk about catastrophic success. The idea that it's very, very unclear um, – what you do once you succeed. There hasn't been a, a lot of planning for this. Uh, there will be an effort to return uh, people to their home countries. But the SDF is not a state. It's a group of uh, it's a it's an armed group uh, affiliated with a political party that is seeking autonomy in northern Syria. But uh, it doesn't have the means to engage in the kind of diplomacy to return people to their home countries. Can the Kurds use this as leverage with the regime in Damascus, perhaps to get help from the regime in Russia to handle these ISIS fighters or lest it let loose these fighters around the rest of Syria and that the regime in Russia and Iran would then have to deal with them separately? Well, you, you make a good point. The SDF certainly wants something from the Assad regime, and that is uh, both a combination of protection as well as uh, autonomy. Um, the Kurds are quite concerned that when the United States finally does pull out of Syria, uh, that it will be left vulnerable to Turkish forces. And the Turks consider 
Washington's Kurdish allies in Syria to be part of another terrorist organization called the Kurdistan Workers Party. It's all extremely complicated. So with the United States leaving, the Kurds have sought protection from the Russians and from the regime. How these ISIS fighters can be used as leverage uh, it remains uh, remains to be seen. Um, certainly, they don't want uh, the, the the regime does not want uh, the uh, ISIS to to reform in some other part of Syria. But again, having the having extremists out there targeting the regime does certainly help it uh, politically. Uh, because the Syrians have been making the argument that they are fighting terrorism, not fighting a civil war. The Islamic State Caliphate has really been stamped out for the most part, but a lot of these uh, ISIS members that have surrendered don't seem very repentant, and including the wives that had children with these members. Does it seem like there is still a window of opportunity for the Islamic State in Syria if if this issue can't be handled in the right way? Well, I think undoubtedly um, that... ISIS will continue to live on in some form or another. Uh, the caliphate clearly has been uh, defeated, but you can't defeat uh, a worldview. You can't defeat an ideology with, uh, with bombs and bullets. And um, those ISIS fighters that haven't been captured have scattered to other parts of the region, other parts of the world, and, and they continue to carry this worldview. And as you point out, even those who've been captured, continue to adhere to uh, the worldview that made the caliphate possible, even uh, even if it was not around for a very long time. So my suspicion is, my strong suspicion is that um, the anti-ISIS coalition that was formed in 2014 to defeat the caliphate will remain active around the globe uh, to combat uh, ISIS 2.0 or ISIS 3.0. Um, but this is really a struggle that needs to go on within the Muslim world, uh, because as much as as much firepower as this international coalition can bring uh, to bear on uh, ISIS cells, um, this is really an, an ideological and political battle that needs to be fought um, by Muslims against other Muslims who have uh, taken their faith and used it for violent means. The Kurds felt abandoned earlier this year when President Trump said he'd be pulling all U.S. troops out of Syria. Now it's being reported that upwards of 1,000 troops will remain in Syria. Do you think this provides much relief for the Kurds? Well, you know, is it really 1,000 troops? Uh, a week ago it was 200 troops, then it was 400 troops, and then, you know, 1,000 troops. It's sort of rounding up because you're not taking, you know, you have support and all those kinds of things. So we really don't know what the number is. The hope is that um, with the number, whatever it is, that the United States can enlist its European allies, the French and the British, to commit as many as the United States has there. Uh, And then you would have a a, a force that would be um, formidable enough to deter the Turks from uh, attacking uh, the SDF. Uh, It would deter the regime, it would provide a, a means which the United States would have leverage with the Russians over the future of Syria, and it would keep uh, a close eye on uh, Iranian activity in, in Syria. That is the hope. Um, the question is, is, that, is whether this will be uh, the actual policy. 
the president, um, it is true that the president has been consistent in the fact that he doesn't want to be uh, in open-ended conflicts in the Middle East. But this policy has swung wildly from one end of the spectrum uh, to the other. So tomorrow we could find uh, ourselves discussing an, an, an entirely different number when it comes to the number of residual troops left in Syria. You mentioned the Turks. Erdogan made his move on the Kurdish-held enclave of Afrin last summer, threatened to move deeper into Kurdish-held territory. How important is it for the Kurds in Damascus to reach a deal for limited Kurdish authority? Well, this is uh, the, the regime in Damascus has said that it will reestablish its control over all of Syria. Um, but there is a belief that the Kurds and uh, the Assad regime can come to some type of agreement that would afford the Kurds some type of uh, autonomy while creating the, you know, the impression that the that, you know, Syria is in the hands of. Uh, of the government in, in Damascus. That would take a significant amount of, I think, diplomatic creativity. But uh, one supposes it's possible. And that is a way uh, for the Kurds to try to protect themselves from, uh, from the Turks. Although the Turks um, are in Syria in, in large ways, uh, they are really hammered between um, what their goals are and the fact that the Russian, they need the Russians uh, for a variety of different reasons, and the Russians support the Assad regime. Uh, they do not want to get headlong into a conflict of Syrians because of what it might do to their relations with the Russians. Stephen, would an autonomous Kurdish region provide stability for the region? And how would that affect Kurds living in Iraq, Iran, and most of all, Turkey? Well, the, the argument has always been that um, Kurdish autonomy or Kurdish statehood uh, in one of those countries that has large numbers of Kurds in them would destabilize the rest. Uh, and this is what motivates uh, the Turks. They believe that um, the SDF, the major Kurdish component of the SDF, uh, is part of a terrorist organization and that uh, will uh, destabilize Turkey and will establish a, a terrorist state on Turkey's borders that could lead to, the, in a nightmare scenario, lead to the breakup uh, of Turkey. That, that's been the kind of traditional fears of, uh, of, of Kurdish uh, national aspirations. Of course, in Iraq, um, the Kurdistan regional government in the northern part of the country, three provinces in northern Iraq, has been able to establish good working relations with both Turkey and, uh, and Iran, mostly Turkey, um, and, and uh, has proven uh, itself to be you know, uh, responsible. Of course, when it wanted, when, when, when they held a, a, a referendum on autonomy, the Turks and the Iraqis and the Iranians all cooperated to undermine uh, those aspirations. So uh, Kurdistan is a piece of the puzzle uh, in uh, a Middle East that is changing that can either be a source of great instability uh, and the traditional fears about Turkish nas uh, Kurdish national aspirations could come true, or, or it could, over time, be one of these places that um, uh, can be part of the region uh, and well-integrated into the region, even if it's autonomous zones within existing states. We've gotten conflicting reports about Turkey and Iran working together to go after PKK members in Iraq. Iran has denied that it's helped the Turks in this case. What do you make of that, and, and does that complicate this issue even further? Well, regardless of what Turkey or Iran's relations are with the 
Kurdistan regional governor, government in Iraq. They are going to continue to target uh, this terrorist organization called the PKK and its offshoots in Syria and Iran. Uh, this is, would not be the first time that the Turkish uh, armed forces and the Iranians have cooperated against um, this affiliated terrorist organization, nor will it likely uh, be the last. I think the Turks are making, are publicizing it uh, for uh, electoral reasons. There are local elections that are coming up in Turkey on March 31. It is a closely fought race. Uh, and even though uh, it's local elections, there are uh, high stakes involved. And um, President Erdogan and his ruling Justice and Development Party and those officials have every interest in kind of playing up the fact that Turkey is involved in these anti-terror operations ahead of these uh, ahead of these local elections. You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and we're talking about the latest developments in Syria with Stephen Cook, any Enrico Mattei Senior Fellow for Middle East and Africa Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Let's shift our attention to Idlib, the last bastion for Syria's rebels, a city with three million people packed into it. Russia and Turkey have agreed to protect Idlib from a regime offensive, but Damascus continues to attack the area with aerial bombardments. How long until this agreement falls apart and the regime finally makes its move on Idlib? Well, the, 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 the agreement is falling apart. Um, and there have been subsequent agreements to try to shore it up that have also been uh, falling apart. Uh, just today, the regime was shelling parts of Idlib province. And I think that the, the, the major problem is that um, Turkey... Uh, which had agreed to disarm uh, extremist groups within Idlib and bring other groups under kind of an umbrella of moderate, uh, for lack of a better term, moderate opposition that would satisfy mostly Russia in order to put off uh, an offensive, has completely failed uh, to do that. Um, I think it was, uh, I think it was fairly clear that the Turks weren't going to be able to do that. In fact, not only did they fail, but the the most extreme of these groups now really controls most of Idlib province. Uh, it remains uh, unclear how long the Russians are going to wait, as is his uh, as is his practice. Vladimir Putin is playing both ends of the stick here. Uh, he has agreed with Turks on um, patrolling Idlib, uh, on uh, keeping the regime forces away, but at the same time. The Russians have also said that Idlib is an open sore and it needs to be taken care of. So um, I suspect without any kind of dramatic diplomatic uh, change in the situation, uh, we will probably see uh, agreements on Idlib break down uh, over, over time and, and significant violence uh, continue. Is it even remotely possible to isolate the jihadist groups from the millions of people packed into the city? Uh, Idlib is is probably the most complicated problem in Syria at the moment, and it, it given the fact that uh, uh, the the most extreme of these groups, which goes by the, the initials HTS, uh, is really the, the the group that is uh, most powerful and most in control. Uh, it seems unlikely unlikely that anybody who's targeting Idlib province can uh, can disentangle civilians from uh from fighters certainly neither the russians nor the syrians 
uh, have ever that has never really been a concern of theirs. They've attacked uh, parts of the country indiscriminately, regardless of the, the consequences for civilians. You mentioned HTS, the former al-Qaeda offshoot. Uh, they've been developing a local Islamist government in Idlib. Are they preparing for life after arms? Are they hoping to be the next Hezbollah transitioning into a uh, respected political party in the country? <laughs> well, it is, it is an interesting contrast to ISIS. Um, HTS has uh, been... And we're speaking relatively here, relatively more moderate, has uh, developed uh, means of, of governance, uh, has won the support of local populations and thus has been more durable. Um, it's entirely possible that um, it, it, that the that HTS uh, is looking towards a post uh, post conflict role in the governance of Idlib. But it strikes me that this is a non starter at the very least, for the Assad regime. The U.S. designated HTS a terrorist group last summer, and HTS protested, saying it doesn't threaten the outside world or represent a danger to it. Uh, do you see HTS as a potential threat to those outside Syria, and is it a threat to those within? Look, uh, one has to uh, at least account for the possibility of evolution uh, of groups, but this was an Al Qaeda offshoot, uh, and um, you know it, 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 that has the means uh, to do uh, damage not just in Syria but in in other parts uh, of the Middle East. They have been focused on uh, on Syria, quite obviously, um, but uh, that means taking the word of, uh, of of an extremist organization that was connected to Al Qaeda. I'm not sure I'm prepared to to accept what they say on face value. Turkey obviously has to be concerned about Idlib, given its proximity to the Turkish border and the possibility of thousands of refugees pouring across from Syria. Uh, might Ankara have enough of an incentive to, to make sure that the situation doesn't become an all-out offensive and fall apart and, and have to receive all those refugees? It, it absolutely does. And that's what has driven the Turks to make agreements with the Russians on Idlib. Um, and that is why you see Turkish and Russian patrols, uh, either uh, Russians on one side of the de-escalation zone, Turks on the other side of the de-escalation zone, uh, because the Turks are quite rightly fearful that any kind of assault on Idlib would impact uh, them by driving refugees into, uh, into Syria. Um, the, the problem that the Turks have is that they have been unable to meet uh, the requirements that they themselves agreed to as part of a series of agreements on on how to deal with Idlib. How important is it for Moscow to get along with Ankara? Does Putin fear Erdogan shifting his allegiance back to Washington? Well, it's certainly the case that uh, Putin wants to have good relations with Turkey, if only to weaken the Western alliance. Uh, Turkey is a treaty ally of the United States through NATO, uh, the second largest military in uh, in the North Atlantic Alliance, and to the extent that um, Erdogan has sought Moscow uh, and Moscow's assistance to protect Turkey's interests in Syria, uh, the Russian leader has taken advantage of this and has sought to uh, create space or drive a wedge between the United States and Turkey. That's not the only reason why there are very difficult relations between Turkey and the United States right now. But certainly the Russians have taken advantage of this situation 
to uh, to deepen these differences. Putin uh, wants to be very careful because misstep would probably drive the Turks back to uh, back to the United States, something that he doesn't want. Uh, he doesn't want to happen. Stephen, it's very difficult, as one could imagine, for reporters to get in and out of Idlib. Do we have any idea how effectively humanitarian supplies are getting to those people trapped in Idlib? It's entirely unclear what the what the real situation is uh, in Idlib. As you point out, uh, HTS has uh, established mechanisms of governance, uh, has uh, established some support uh, with uh, among the population, so that the situation is um, likely not as dire as in places. Uh, where the Islamic State has held sway, um, but we really we don't we don't quite know uh, what's actually happening within this area. Nine years into the war, is reconciliation remotely possible at this point between the rebels and regime? Well, you know, long range studies of civil wars uh, indicate that they last between seven and fifteen years. Uh, so um, we are coming up kind of right smack in the middle of that. And uh, although it seems that the Assad regime will prevail, uh, it has not completely prevailed yet. Uh, the Idlib suggests that despite the fact that the regime is seeking a, uh, a military so- solution to the problem, that it may end up having to be uh, a, a political solution. So far, though, the parties are, are not quite ready uh, to to negotiate in good faith over over the future of the country. Certainly no signs of peace on the horizon. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us again on The Crisis Next Door. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. We've been joined by Stephen Cook, any Enrico Matei Senior Fellow for Middle East and Africa Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.